The following program is an abridged audio version of the streaming video talk show, A Wonderful Chaos. The hosts are Andy Chaliff and Bambos Dimitriou. The format is entirely casual, unscripted conversation. If you'd like to watch a live taping or participate with your comments in real time, subscribe to A Wonderful Chaos on YouTube, Facebook, Periscope, or Twitch. Creative imagination is not something reserved for the poets, the philosophers, the inventors. Human beings always act and feel and perform in accordance with what they imagine to be true about themselves and their environment. And I can visualize when I'm breathing again without the help of all these machines. I can visualize a life when I can walk more than three steps at a time without collapsing. I can visualize a life where I don't feel like I'm suffocating every single second of the day. And I can believe that it's going to happen. And even though it's not happening right now, that belief and that in that visualization is what keeps me going through this hard stuff. It's a wonderful chaos, random, messy and glorious. Solo or tandem. We work to find rest and fight to find peace. Both head and the heart. we are on with verily Cornell Cano Cano no W a silent W and we're going to be discussing her and her podcast, Why Not? And it's a journey of recovery. And she suffered from everything imaginable. So we really are going to be discussing recovery. I love how you how you say it with a big smile. She suffered from everything I mean, imaginable. <laughs> we'll get into it. I needed to look. I needed to look at like dictionaries to see all these words because there are so many words there that I'd never heard before. And we're going to do all of this and much, much more. Where bambi bambi bambos on a wonderful kills, Mr. Shalef. Here we go. Verily, I always like a hyphenated name, first name because my mom's name was Mary Kay, right? She basically, from a very young age, had to overcome a lot of adversity. So, you know, when, when I think to myself in my present state of living and, and being at peace with most things, the one thing I see that really sucks is when I don't feel well. Right. And I'm like, if I had to feel this way the rest of my life, that would suck. Like, that's the one thing. Like, when we talk about gratitude, one of the first gratitudes I'll always say is health. Like, I just I'm grateful that I'm healthy. Yeah. And so when I'm thinking to myself from a very young age before anything, but just by birth that you would have certain things you'd need to overcome. Like, what a what a shitty place to start. <clears throat> and so she and and I, I, the I asked her and I st- I won't remember. So she's from a very early age has Osgood Schlater's bone disease in both knees. And I can't even pronounce the blood disorder. I'm not even going to try because she's told me how to pronounce it. But Eos- I, Eosinophilic. No, no. She pronounced it really as effortlessly. And I can't remember that. Asthma, 
so when she speaks, she's also got a vocal cord dysfunction that was diagnosed in late 30s. So she'll cough sometimes and we might take a break. But, you know, outside of that, like that's just her health side. And then on the personal side, you know, she's been in a marriage with uh, abuse. She's had PTSD and domestic violence and sexual assault. I mean, her list is like a is like a, a crime sheet, but the other side of the crime sheet. Love it. <clears throat> Yeah, exactly. So, and she, in spite of that, said, "Hey, I'm doing a podcast called Why Not, and uh, and and I'm going to share how I overcame all of this." And I thought, really cool to have a talk with her just about that journey. So, this is a journey of overcoming. Without further ado, here she is. Hello, hello, hello. Which all diseases? <laughs> which diseases did I not? Did I fail to uh, also include in my uh, in my intro? Yeah, so eczemophilia. Eczemophilia. It's like a list yeah. of accomplishments. Eczemophilia. <laughs> it sort of is. Well, a lot of people are calling me the adversity queen because I really do have this extensively long list of things I've had to go through, and there's a lot more behind that. There's bullying. There's oh gosh, yeah. there's there's so much. That was the first but, thing that came to mind. By the way, I lived in Australia. Yeah for a year plus a, a bit, I went to Sydney University and I'd never experienced such a masculine, uh, like uh, uncomfortably masculine society, like uh, with all my travels. But towards the dark side. Towards the dark side. It's not yeah. like a presence, yeah. consciousness. And, and when I read this and knew that you were in, the, in Australia specifically, I had even, I had discomfort arise in me because I thought, oh, that's exactly the place where there's such lack of compassion in my Very experience. Interesting. Very interesting. Yeah. Um, Sydney for me, I'm not originally from Sydney. I'm from Melbourne and yeah. Melbourneians, as we call ourselves, yeah. we have often got that view of people in Sydney. They seem to be a very standoffish lot, whereas in Melbourne you're more likely to have people walk past you in the street and actually wave and say hi or oh, wow. actually open the elevator door for you and things like that. Where I live now, which is a rural town of New South Wales, oh, my gosh, completely different again. Like people will almost be jumping across the road to say, hey, oh, hello, I don't know you yet. Nice to meet you, you know. So, yeah, I think it depends on which area of, of Australia you're in. I mean, yeah. the country itself is amazing. And like everything, there's wonderful people everywhere. Yeah, obviously. I actually worked on the sheep and cattle station and I, I got the roughest part of the society. You know? Yeah, you did. <laughs> I took a, the, the, the dad took me out and grabbed me by the, back by the, Andy by was... the shirt and said, don't go out with my daughter. Like that's what I remember yeah. really well from that time. Back then though, he was not the Andy that you see now. He was suppressed. Okay. <laughs> he was not dealing with anything. Yeah. He was running away. So I don't blame him. I don't blame him either, of course. Mm, so Good initiation I, I, though. <laughs> I, I, I do have a question because like the first thing that came up for me is if, if, you're, if your body is having so many um diseases like mm. it, it, it feels like it's not at ease mm. with with the things happening to it what prevents you from ending your life mm. you know that's a really good question and i don't know that anyone's actually asked me that question phrased that way before so let me see how i go answering that there was one time in my life where i considered ending it all Mm. This was before I had a child. 
This was before I was married and, in fact, before I'd even had a relationship with anybody. And this was when I was clinically depressed. I was diagnosed with clinical depression. I'd gone through a very difficult situation in my career, which I'd spent all of my life up until that point setting everything up to step into this new career that I was so passionate about. And there was a certain situation which I can't publicly talk about. However, there was defamation and some things going on. And it felt like everything was just pulled from under me. Mm. And I didn't know where to go. I didn't know who to seek help from. And I wasn't getting support that I needed. I certainly wasn't getting it from the place where I was working at the time. And so for me, there was one moment I remember distinctly driving down a highway. Unfortunately, I had actually had some alcohol, which is not something that I traditionally do. I don't usually drink alcohol. That particular night I had had alcohol. I was driving to a particular event that I was required to go to as part of this job. And I just didn't want to be there and I didn't want to be anywhere. And I remember thinking, if I just veered over to the left a little bit, if I just, you know, went over and hit something, then it would all be over. And then I thought, I can't do that because for that to work, I'd have to go into oncoming traffic. And for that to work, somebody else is going to get hurt. Mm. And I could never, never choose to be responsible for hurting somebody else. I'd been through already at that point in my life, a lot of pain from different people. And I certainly wasn't going to inflict that upon anyone else. So to answer your question, empathy, compassion for others, love, and connection with others. And even though at that moment I felt very disconnected, I still knew that I was in there somewhere. I still Mm -hmm. knew that even though I felt disconnected to myself, I could find myself again if I was willing to look, to seek, Mm -hmm. to seek out myself. And so that was what I did. Mm. Mm. I I really loved how, how calm, how calmly you answered that question. Like I could feel, I could feel the words as you were speaking them. Mm. Mm. Yes. It's interesting oh, to Bambos. It's interesting because I wouldn't have asked that question. Do Do you know what happened? What? Oh, I I I did rear, drive the car off the cliff. And, yeah, but th- this is where I was going to get to. <laughs> is that I was asking. I wouldn't have asked that question because I wouldn't have felt close enough to that experience in myself to ask it comfortably. And what I realized as Bambos asked is like, oh shit, Bambos is asking the question because it's so common from his experience that he can access that kind of comfort level. Mm. And that 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 was that, that touched me as you asked actually. Yeah. I guess I should have also uh what I'm learning on the show um is to also share that why I'm asking and in the time where I was depressed, I did and and I was a drug addict also for 10 years. I did drive the car off the cliff and having been a failure my whole life, I I kind of landed in a tree. (laughs) So, yeah. So you felt like you failed that attempt. (laughs) I I failed that attempt. (laughs) It's interesting. It's it's very interesting question. And I think what you're talking about here, Andy, is that Bambos knows how to hold that space. And that's something yeah. that I talk about often. Yeah. I do the same with my guests on my show. We talk about really deep, dark moments in their life. Yeah. 
Yeah. And to be able to talk about that, you need to have a level of comfortability with it. Yeah. And you only can get that to hold that space for somebody else if you've been through it yourself to a certain yeah. level. Mm. Mm. I mean, yeah. to, to be where you are right now, the the words which come up for me right now is self-love without knowing what the question will be. Mm. What, so what will be your journey mm. towards loving yourself and loving what is if you want to take it on a more spiritual in quotes level yeah there's a few ways i can answer that question so i'm going to explain based on a number of different times in my life for me self-love has evolved it has changed it's a very flexible and almost pliable thing for me so back then if we go back to that moment i had self-love i knew my worth to myself and I felt like I was fighting against everybody else around me at that time. My family and close friends accepted, but I wasn't geographically close to them at the time. So I felt like everybody else around me was fighting against me and giving me this opposite view that I wasn't worthy and I knew I was. And mm -hmm. so for me, I was at war, it seemed like, with the world. And so although I knew my self-worth and I loved myself, I didn't understand why everybody else seemed to be on a different page with me. If we talk about other events that have significantly affected me and my own view of self-worth, you mentioned about the domestic violence relationship I went through. This person was my husband. This was supposed to be the love of my life. Mm. And yet he not only sexually assaulted me repeatedly, he did just about every form of domestic violence that you can think of. It was right across the board, financial abuse, emotional abuse, mental abuse. The physical abuse came in the form of sexual assault. I mean, the list just kept going. There was the isolation. It was, it was just, it was an awful traumatic experience. And as I explained to people, I was a very articulate person. I, you know, had been through a Bachelor of Applied Science and teaching. I was an educator. I was a very empathic and compassionate person. And yet I didn't see the signs because I wasn't aware of what domestic violence was. I wasn't aware mm. of how this manipulation was in practice. I didn't think that I knew anybody who'd gone through domestic violence or sexual assault. And mm. I say that I didn't think I knew because I now know the statistics prove that most likely half the people I knew had either gone through something themselves or knew somebody close to them who has, but yeah. people weren't talking. And so because this wasn't a conversation that I was used to being around, I was used to hearing or even participating in, when I got to the point where I realised this was what was actually happening to me, I was already so emotionally invested in this person, I didn't know where to go from there and the systematic cutting off of people from your life meant that when I explained the brutal rape for the first time that I literally tore my soul from my body to survive to be able to act as a protection for mm. what I had to endure in that moment I then didn't know how I could reach out to other people for support and so in those sorts of moments Although that was a protective mechanism that I became very good at using later on, it also created a significant disconnection 
from myself to Mm. myself. And so my level of self-worth and my level of self-love was diminishing and deteriorating with every single rape, with every single taunt, with every single name he called me under the sun, with every single time that I felt fear in that relationship, with every single time I felt trapped and I felt like a prisoner. And so that stage was very different to the type of self-love that I was operating within for myself and yet depressed because I didn't know why other people weren't seeing that. Now I was essentially contained in this house in a box with this person who had cut off almost everybody else meaningful in my life and was telling me that I was the one who was crazy. I was the one who was seeing things and not remembering correctly and, you know, So it was a very interesting and difficult time for me to go through personally Mm. and to work out a way to find myself, you know, find a way back to myself through that. And part of that came through becoming a mother through that experience. With that man? With that man. I have Mm -hmm. one child and he was born from that man, that relationship. Now, when I say that to people... They often ask me, do I resent having this child? You know, did I resent becoming pregnant because I was in this terrible relationship with this man? The thing is, I still was trying to love this man and I still was trying to believe that he loved me because why else had we started this relationship? Why else had we gotten this far? And there were moments when he was a very loving man and the realisation came many years later that he chose when to behave and when to misbehave. He chose when to abuse me and assault me. And that realisation for me was key in understanding how to get back that connection to myself, that in fact it was his behaviour and his choice to behave that way around and to me. There was some love in that relationship and that's what I was constantly looking for until it got to a point where I said, you know what, This is now involving my child, whom I love, Mm. who I am so blessed to have in this world. And I will not allow you to hurt my child. And Mm. the moment when I changed my mind about trying to make things work and I realized the only way to survive this was to leave, Mm. was the day that he, standing in the kitchen, walked up, or I wouldn't even call it walked, if you can think of an angry ape beating at his chest, mm. tearing towards you, this was what he was doing. He was literally ripping the T-shirt off his body. There was no longer the man that I knew in his eyes looking back at me. Wow. And he full on swiped at me and my child, who was a couple of months old at that point in time, and missed us by about a centimetre, half an inch. And at that moment... I froze and in my mind things were going a million miles an hour Mm. and I'd already been setting up emergency bags and plans about how I was going to leave and all these things but at that moment I was like that's it this has to happen now Mm. I cannot be here with my child another moment and have the worst possible case scenario happen where he would have my child fly across the room and be killed because he had crossed some sort of invisible line. Mm. Mm. And you left then? I left. 
Never to return? How did that proceed after that? Never to return. So he worked as a chef. Can, 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 we, um, can we, because you've said so much as far as I'm concerned, um, I want to slow it down a little bit. Mm. Sure. Like you, you mentioned um, he had a story um, about you, like that you're the one that's uh, not right in the head. Like how did how did that play out in your body? Were you able to find your agency or were you losing your agency in that moment? A little bit like that other moment when I said that I understood my worth and yet nobody else around me seemed to. And so I was fighting this war. That was what that was like. I was fighting his version of events. I was fighting what he was controlling or trying to control mm. of me, in me, around me. And I was fighting my own memories of what I knew and felt with every ounce of my energy and body to have been the case and to be true. And yet here is this person constantly telling me otherwise. And as strong as I am mentally as a person, as connected as I was or disconnected as I was at the time, I still knew that my version of events was correct. I knew that his behaviour was not as he was trying to say and change and was actually, in fact, what I remembered had happened. And I had lots of evidence for these things. I was keeping journals. I, you know, had the broken plates that he didn't remember breaking. And, you know, I had all these different reasons for knowing. And yet somehow there is something that changes eventually when day after day, after week, after month, after year, you're being told that you're crazy, that's not the way it is, what is wrong with you, you need to go and see somebody, there is something seriously wrong here, you start to question your own level of sanity within that. Wow. Did, I'm assuming you guys never talked about him getting help? All the time, he refused. And when you say he refused, did he, were you able to have a conversation with him? Mm. Or Had many conversations with him at the start when I recognized the red flags, when I recognized behaviors, when I recognized some of the manipulation, although I didn't fully understand what it was. So earlier on, we had many conversations and usually the response was, well, I don't have a problem. I don't, I don't understand where you're getting this. I don't understand why you're seeing it that way. That's not the case. That's not mm. the way it is. Or, oh, well, sorry, sorry, sometimes I lose my temper. Well, sorry, I'm really sorry. I don't mean it. You know, I'll be better next time. That's the usual dialogue that most people who've been through domestic violence understand. It's the, yes, I've just behaved this way. Yes, I've created this awful hurt. And I'm so sorry, I'll do anything to get you back. I'll, I'll do anything to make it better. I love you. You know, I don't know what came over me. I'm so sorry, it won't happen again. And you do believe that to a certain point. And then you realise when you see the pattern of behaviour is not changing and in fact is escalating. And in fact, the more that you say, hang on, that's not actually the way it is, the more the behaviour escalates and gets worse and worse and worse. And I'm usually very, very good at detecting patterns, at seeing things from a different perspective. And during that period, 
the amount of onslaught is probably a good word to use for it of things that were coming from him in every possible way including energy I mean my dad and I often described him as the black hole because that was the energy coming from him when he was like that it was Mm -hmm. very difficult for me to remain clear of mind and I lived in a bit of a fog and on top of that because I was going through so much stress I was put on antidepressants and that made my fog even worse yeah and so it was it was a really interesting and difficult time to really hold steady to what again I knew was true and yet was being told constantly no that's not the way it is Mm. there's something Mm. wrong with you well, you, you really took me through a journey. Um, before 2014, I didn't have an issue with violence. Like, I didn't, I just didn't see it. I, I grew up in it, also in my culture. So as I lived my life, um, shouting and, and being verbally abusive was a very normal thing. And it was only until I met Andy, who put a very big mirror in front of my face, and I had to come to terms with how I was living and that that behavior was not acceptable. And as you're speaking, I, I can't help but think about his past. But obviously, we're not here to talk about his past. Um, you, you've, you've gone through this and apparently you also have been having physical ailments happening to you. Where, where do these two stories tie together Mm. i started feeling and becoming more unwell when i went through that clinical depression stage and the thing is i met him when i was sort of recovering from that particular experience and so i was in a vulnerable state when i met him and the fact that our relationship developed and deteriorated so did my health so did my illnesses get worse Mm -hmm. and worse and it was like a compounding effect and I often talk to people about how much emotions do affect our body particularly when we contain them Mm -hmm. and so you mentioned before about how calmly I speak about things I do speak about things very calmly however at that time I wasn't calm I was in chaos and yet I was feeling numb and so I had this push and pull constantly inside of me, like a, like a war, really, where I'm like, okay, I'm this calm person. I have this calm exterior. You know, I like to articulate what I'm talking about. And yet here I am in this insane environment with this really psychotic behavior that I'm having to deal with where I don't know when it's going to be flown at me or not. Mm. It's like walking on eggshells every moment of the day. And even when you do things the right way, the way that you are supposed to do, then there'll still be something that they will pick on for that. And so it's a no-win situation. And so being in that chaos and yet being a naturally calm, logical person was something that I hadn't experienced in my life before. And it took a lot of internal conversations with myself trying to work through that, you know, Mm. trying to remain connected with what was left of myself that 
that was still standing after the abuse, you know, that didn't feel broken because a lot of myself felt broken and beaten down. And so it was about trying to hang on to those things. And people now, they often again term me as the eternal optimist because no matter what I've been through and all of the different things that just seem to be one thing on top of another on top of another, I've always managed to instinctively look for the positive rather than looking for the negative. And honestly, that is what has helped me to accept what's going on and in my own mind work out ways how I was going to try and change or what positive things I could focus on. So if we take another example, my illness got to the point where it was so bad and I had left him, I'd been quite a few years out of that relationship my son and I were starting to set up a new life in a different town I'd started my own business which was going really well and yet I was working so hard and so long and I still was trying to go through this recovery process and unbox a lot of this trauma I didn't give myself enough space to really deal with that and to have that emotional Mm. healing that I needed. And I crashed very, very badly. And that was around the time that I was spending more time in hospital than out. I had to walk away literally from a thriving business where I had employees. And I Mm. had to accept that I was in such a physical disarray that I needed to give myself a few years of space to try and heal and try and, you know, get some way of management that I could actually be having some semblance of quality of life. And at that Mm -hmm. point in my life, I was extremely morbidly obese, super morbidly obese. I'd been on a drug called prednisolone or cortisone. A lot of people know it as Mm. extremely high doses. And so, you know, the weight just kept piling on no matter what I did that drug can affect very morbid, and I use the word morbid here again, very morbid thoughts and moods. It can flick you over into very depressive states. And there was just so many elements in my body that were breaking down. Mm. At that time, I had undiagnosed conditions, so the eosinophilia and the vocal cord dysfunction were undiagnosed at that time. Mm. And so we were seeking help. We eventually did get those diagnoses, um, only to be told that there were no cures at that point in time. Okay. But again, even when I was flat on my back, tied up to machines, keeping me breathing, unable to move anything but my little finger, and usually not even able to lift my little finger that far, Mm. I was still aware that my brain and my mind and my imagination were intact Mm. and that that was my key to getting through that was my key to finding the hope that was my key to keep seeking that was my key to say you know what I may be unable to move here right now but I can still think I can still imagine I can still visualize when my body is well Mm. and breathe life into what I could still do and and have left in my body, my physical body. And so Mm. the power of visualization and the power of being able to seek the positive had a massive influence on both my recovery physically, emotionally, and mentally. Man, that's pretty incredible. Mm. How, How do you source the strength 
without letting your mind take over because obviously you're in a not in a physical state to be comfortable and then sourcing your imagination and visualize what you want as you said you're very easily going to the positive as the negative so how, how where, where do you need to go in yourself to do that mm, great question because because my name is bambos and i have no clue how it works <laughs> well, I think that it works differently for each of us and it's about finding out what really works for you and there are common elements that we can all share to help each other. However, the exact recipe for what's going to work the best for you is something that comes from trial and error. And if we go back to the fact that, yes, I was born with some of these diseases, even though not all of them were diagnosed at that time, I grew up with these adversities. I mean, I, I was wanting to be a, a tennis champion and I had this bone disease in my knees where I could barely bend. And so there was lots of things that I wanted to do that life pushed me back and said, no, you can't do that. I'm sorry, we're putting the brakes on here. And so no matter how adventurous and and how much potential I felt I had, my body had spent a lot of time pulling me back and saying, no, no, you actually can't do that. And so what I learned through those experiences was a level of acceptance that wasn't defeat. So it was saying, okay, I accept that at the moment I'm in this state. I accept that my body is not allowing me to do this the way that I want to. So how can I look for another perspective? How can I look outside that box? How can I find a way to make it work? And my family was very instrumental in fostering this way of thinking. This is what we did. And this is how we talked. And the discussions we had was, okay, so we understand that this is, is a struggle for you. What can we change so that you can work your way around that struggle instead of saying, well, here's the brick wall. If we keep going at it, we're going to keep hitting it and it doesn't matter how often we hit it, it's not going to change. It's still going to be there. It's a brick wall. You can't punch your way through a brick wall. Mm-hmm. Well, let's look for another way to get around the brick wall instead of going through it. And so I became very good at problem solving and looking at things from a different perspective. Now, people will see behind us our backdrops. So you have one of my pieces of artwork on your backdrop and I have another piece of artwork. I have always felt connected to creative energy. And for me, the more time that I can spend in that imagination mode, the more time that I can be visualizing color, shape, pattern, the more that they affect my mood. And for me, it was about working out visually what calmed me, what gave me the ability to say this is possible, what patterns could I see in my artwork that would relate to patterns of behavior or thinking that I was doing. And so for me, it was a way of connecting the dots. And so I used a lot of audio, a lot of podcasts that I would listen to. I value and understand the importance of the resonance of someone's voice, which is why for my own podcast at this point in time, it is only on podcast platforms because I like people to be able to go into that dark room and take away every other type of stimulation and to simply focus on the human voice Mm. and the power 
of that energy as you hear the words and as you feel those sound waves going through your body and you can you, you can integrate that message that you're getting from that human voice and I used to use a lot of music as well so I would have different types of music depending on what I was going through so when I was at my sickest I would have a mixture of classical music Mm. and heavy metal and alternative music Mm. because they were my two loves and interestingly they were at both ends of the spectrum which is what I needed when I was in that space because somehow that was taking all the chaos and it was taking all the calmness and it was bringing the two together into a beautiful synchronized state that I could go internally connect with myself in that deep dark place that only I know and if you believe in in God or another spiritual being that there was only the two of us in that space. And for me, that was what got me through the most difficult moments when breathing wasn't a two-part, wasn't a one-part process. It was a two-part process. It was, let's work really, really hard to breathe in. Now let's work really, really hard to breathe out. Now let's repeat. Because that's what kept me alive and that's what kept me breathing and that's what kept me here on this earth to be a mother to my child, to be an artist, to share my love and, and wonder for the world, to share my happiness that I am still alive, that I'm grateful to be here because I very nearly wasn't 17 times. Mm. And these are the things that I draw upon that helps me to see hope even in a situation where most people would struggle to do so. So to answer your question. <laughs> I'd like to read you a quote if I could. It explains a lot of the reason I am able to think the way I do. My dad handed me a book called Psycho-Cybernetics when I was 10 years old. And this book was granted a little bit over my comprehension level at that age. However, what I gleaned from it, I integrated into the way that I thought and it made sense to me. And even at that age, I remember having this conversation with my dad saying, wow, I don't know how you got this book or why you got it, um, but I'm so glad that you gave it to me. And I re-bought a copy of this book because we'd moved home so many times, this book had just found its way somewhere else we didn't know where it had ended up it had been lost somewhere along the way and I always remembered this book but I couldn't clearly remember everything about it and so I said you know about five years ago I'm gonna go and buy that book and I did and it sat on my shelf for five years and every day I walked past I said I need to read this book I bought it for a reason I need to read this book and so late last year I did I picked it up and I opened up to a random page and this is what I read Creative imagination is not something reserved for the poets, the philosophers, the inventors. It enters into our every act. Imagination sets the goal picture. We act or fail to act, not because of will, as is so commonly believed, but because of imagination. And this is the most important statement to be gleaned from this entire book. Human beings always act and feel and perform in accordance with what they imagine to be true about themselves and their environment. So let's go back to me, almost comatose, in the hospital, unable to move my little finger. 
and yet I can imagine. And I can say to myself, I have two choices here. I can succumb to the overwhelming feeling that my body is shutting down and not wanting to be here anymore. Or I can stay and I can fight and I can visualize when I'm breathing again without the help of all these machines. I can visualize a life when I can walk more than three steps at a time without collapsing. I can visualize a life where I don't feel like I'm suffocating every single second of the day. Mm. And I can believe that it's going to happen. And even though it's not happening right now, that belief and that in that visualization is what keeps me going through this hard stuff. And that was a random page in the book that I went, this is why I bought this book again. This is why I knew I had to read this book. There is so much of myself that I recognize at that time in my life at 10 years of age that I have integrated into the way that I think, do and be in this world. And it was nice to, to reread it and have those reminders. Hmm. I love creative energy and I love sharing it with people. And that is why I started the Why Me movement, because, and I'll have to correct you here, Andy, the, the podcast is called Why Me rather than Why Not. Did I oh, say why not? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's Why Me. <laughs> I think okay. I was stuck on your last name. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but Why Not's not a bad name. <laughs> it's not a bad name. It's not a bad name. And, you know, to be honest, when I, when I first launched the Why Me movement, and look, I, I came up with this concept many, many years ago, and I was too unwell to actually put it into place. And yeah. then I was too busy trying to get my life back together as a single mother, um, someone who was trying to recover from all these things, illnesses and trauma and everything else. It was like life was happening and I was just trying to do my best to hang on for the ride and still be here. And so when COVID hit last year, it gave me an extra three to four hours every day. And I wanted to put that to good use. And so I finally started the movement. I finally launched it. And the podcast was a natural extension of that. And I had a lot of people ask me, why me? Why don't you say, well, why not me? And because so many people resonate with the why not me? And I say, yeah, I get that. I get the why not me. But here's my perspective. I don't, uh, sorry. I, I, that confuses the hell out of me what you just said because <laughs> I think not, everyone I believe everyone resonates with the why me rather than the why not me like mm. far more like the yeah. the v victim role so sorry mm. could, so collaborate on how you how you uh, kind of see that yes so when I say that people are resonating with the why not me more it's in terms mm. of rather than asking the question why me and instead declaring this is why me. And so when I was explaining the movement to people, when I was explaining the podcast, I was saying to people, the why me doesn't have a question mark Be and it doesn't have the exclamation mark because it is why me is one word encapsulating what it is to be in that woe is me and then to have the journey to change the way that you approach the world to stop asking the question why me and stop feeling like a victim and to instead understand what it is that makes you unique and powerful in this world and that you can grab onto well this is why me 
And when I spoke about it like that, that's when most people said, well, then it's why not me? And I'd say, well, yeah, I get that. However, for me, again, I'm always seeking the positive rather than the negative and not is quite a negative word. Mm. And so if I say why not me, well, then instantly I'm thinking not. So I'm thinking for all the negatives. Well, why not? You know, so I'm going to start looking for the negatives. And this is my perspective. This isn't everybody. Because this was my movement that I was launching, it needed to resonate completely what I was standing for. And so yeah. for me, it was why me without a question mark, without an exclamation mark, because it is everything in between. It is accepting yourself when you're at your lowest most dark moment in your life and looking at yourself in the mirror and looking at your reflection staring back at you <sighs> and actually feeling i love you you are worthy and yeah. i'm going to embrace you where you are now no matter what you feel about mistakes or, you know, you wish you had done this or we hadn't done that, all the regrets, everything that's led you up to that moment, all the pain, it's about accepting in that one moment, looking at yourself in the mirror, that you have a choice to accept and love yourself and embrace the journey, to decide what am I going to do from this point forward? Am I going to keep operating in these patterns of thinking and behavior that are not lifting me up? Mm. And there's the not. Or am I going to choose to say, this is me. This is uniquely me. I have lived through all of these things. And here I am standing here with opportunity, with potential, with hope, with optimism, mm. and with the ability to choose a new way forward to choose to seek the positive and so that is why it's called the why me movement um, rather than the why not thank you for me it sounds like uh just saying the same sentence with two different pronunciations which has a different meaning pretty much why me <laughs> why me yeah and then why me why me yeah. Why me? Correct. Yeah. yeah, you did it with the exclamation mark. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yes, love the exclamation marks. Really, <laughs> um, our guest yesterday also had like, as we shared, she had like she had to look for a kidney, and she was waiting for that. Mm. And she she sourced her journey. She, I mean, she gave herself to to God, not mm. to a religion, but just to God, and and like. Do you do you and you mentioned God earlier, like to what degree did that play a role? Mm. Two very important moments in my life allowed me to welcome God into my life and into my soul and to provide this spiritual connection that I needed at those at those times. The first time was when I just had life-saving treatment to paralyze one of my vocal cords. And within 24 hours, I was suffocating and my body was starting to die and we mm. were on our way to a rural hospital. And my father was there with me and he was tapping on my wrist to what would or should have been the rhythm of my heart. Boom, 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 boom. 
And there I was chaotically trying to squeeze every little ounce of breath that I could on both my in-breath because my airways were collapsing with my vocal cord dysfunction and the severe swelling in my throat and with every out-breath because my lungs were so inflamed and irritated that they were so inflamed and not allowing the air out. And I was focusing on that boom and he was tapping my wrist at the same time. And the decision was made that there was no way I was going to survive that moment unless I was put in an induced coma. Very, very risky for someone who was in both my state, who had my conditions, and who was my size at the time. And I agreed with that decision, and yet I was extremely anxious, as you can imagine. And look, I'd been through so many difficult situations and at that time I'd been through 16 near-death experiences this wasn't like it was the first time I'd ever been here this one was different every other time I had a level of calmness and control that I still felt this time I was beyond exhausted I'd already gone through every backup reserve of the backup reserve of the backup that I had I had nothing left to keep fighting and yet I knew I had so much worth and value to provide other people as well as myself to stay here and so I was wheeled into the operating room and they were just starting to put me under into this induced coma and I had a vision of my dad's father my grandfather whom I'd never met in real life because he'd passed away before I was born and he said a few words to me he said Vera you're going to be okay. And at that moment, I felt that God had sent him with the message in a form that I would be receptive to receiving. And all panic, all chaos left my body. And I remember, I couldn't say it out loud, but I said it in my head, I believe you, I trust you, take my soul, look after me. And let my body do what it needs to do and let them help my body as much as they need to to keep me here. And I succumbed to allow myself to go into that coma at that moment. And when I woke a couple of days later to discover that truly that was the coma I wasn't meant to survive, that was the last time that I asked myself, why me? Why is this happening to me? I'm a good person. You know, I I don't feel that I deserve this. Why am I looking around? Everyone else can breathe. They take it for granted. I can't. And I realised I'd been given a second chance. And although although I was still in a state with my body, my mind, my perspective of everything had shifted. And I explained to people... When I woke up and they were all worried about pulling the tube out and I was just like, well, just get on with it. Like, get this thing out of me. I'll be right. And they all sort of walked away and they were talking with my family because they'd been told to, you know, make all the plans. And they took my family away, so I found out later. And they said, look, we're really concerned that when once we pull out the breathing tube, she's not going to breathe on her own. And then we've got another problem of trying to get it back in. You know, and the time that that will take with her size, with all of the things that have happened, with her vocal cords being so sensitive. And they did make the decision to take out the tube. And I was unaware of those conversations. I just accepted, I'm here. 
take out the tube, let's go. Because I had this calmness in my soul. Mm. And without that message, I wouldn't have had that. And I don't know if I would have still been here. And I don't believe and I didn't feel that I was, my soul was actually there when the fight was happening with my body. Mm. I believe that I was away. I have no recollection of anything in that time. And I believe that I was being looked after and cared for and loved and filled with that different perspective. That when I did go outside for the first time, after waking up from that coma, the sky had never looked so blue. And the grass had never been so vibrantly green. And I explained to people the sun had never felt so comforting as it did that day. And nothing had changed except my perspective of the world and how and where I fit into it. And so that was my first very, very defining moment with God. After that, I seeked a church, a local church in my area, And I had lots of people that were coming and visiting our church who didn't know me. They didn't know my story. They also didn't know that that treatment that was actually keeping me alive meant that I had no voice for a two-year period. I couldn't speak. When you have a vocal cord paralyzed, you can't speak. Mm. And so people were coming up to me and they were, they were prophesying over me and they were saying, you are going to speak words and life into people all across the world. Speak words, not write them, not paint them and draw them and create them as I was already doing in my artwork, but to speak words globally and life into people. And I believed them. However, my logical brain said, how can I do that when I have no voice? Mm. Mm. And look at me now. I have my own podcast. I'm interviewing people from all across the world, holding that space for them to share their deep and meaningful moments with the world, Mm. for them to provide their insight and their lessons and their perspective on how they've overcome adversity, on how they've seen the opportunities for personal and community growth within and through the adversity as I have myself. Mm. It's, it's an amazing journey. You know, you could have been a hypnotherapist. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> One, one of our, <laughs> one, one of our, well, with, with that voice of yours, even one of our viewers, she wrote, Vera sounds so calm. Love it. Yeah. Thank you. It's a comment I get from pretty much every single guest that comes on my show mm. and most of the audience that listen mm. to the podcast. And again, I, I think that that comes from owning who I am. And there's a really funny story about my voice that isn't anything to do with the traumas. It isn't anything to do with that stuff. It is to do with me as a six or seven-year-old little girl who had a voice like this and was so excited about everything. And my dad said to me, Vera, because I went through a stage, I was born Vera Lee, just to get off topic for one second, but I promise it's related. I was born Vera Lee, hyphen, that is my name, one name, Vera Lee, Vera hyphen Lee. And I had one particular aunt 
who was the only person calling me Vera Lee when I was just starting to break into that sort of teenagerhood, you know. And for me in Australia, having a second name like that, particularly a hyphenated name that is actually my one name, is not very common. And so for me, I felt like I needed to be Vera and to drop the second part of my name to be standing into my, you know, growing into adulthoodness. And that was what I thought. And so I politely asked everybody to call me Vera rather than Vera Lee. And she was the last person to stop calling me Vera Lee. And for a long time, I was Vera. And I came back into the Vera Lee quite recently in the last few years because that is who I am and I connect with myself through every age and stage that I have been through and I'm very strongly connecting to who I am as a person and my name is Vera Lee and so I operate out of Vera Lee now and at that six or seven years of age my father said to me Vera you need to lower your voice I don't believe that your voice is actually up where you're talking all the time. And so let's calm you down a little bit <laughs> and let's allow you to find your voice. Let's, let's get you talking from a lower area rather than up here in, your, in your back of your throat. Let's talk from your chest. And so I remember saying to him, okay. And then it was like, okay. And he said, that, that is your voice. And it took me a long time. It took me years. And sometimes still now when I get really excited, I'm up there. <laughs> My normal register, though, is quite deep. And for a mm. woman, it is a lot deeper than a lot of women speak. And again, the more that I learn about myself and the more I connect to myself and the more I embody that calmness that is naturally me, the more that comes out in my voice and at my lower register. There is so much more vibration. There is so much more power. And there is so much more emotion and feeling and energy. And I tap into that because that is the level that I like to operate on now. I want to ask one last question. J just based on yesterday's show and today's show, what I observe is the way you've gone through your journey it, it it may like you you are very, you feel very embodied to me as you speak we we also didn't interrupt anything because norm normally if people are more here we tend yeah. to also slow it down and ask questions but with you it, it just was very grounded and i i, I don't actually know the difference like uh, the guest from yesterday felt a little bit more still in the fight phase of her journey. Well, Vera said it, and I thought what, what fascinated me, and I thought brilliant, I've never heard it before, is that um, I'll often mimic and play with the high-registered voice that isn't really in its own skin because it has a lot to say, but it doesn't really feel like it's connected to what it's saying. And, and, like, and so when um, Vera said that, it was really beautiful to see that her father recognized that that out of body experience it, through the voice mm. and that he called attention to it in a way that wasn't shaming or or uh or derogatory to push her down or make her feel like it wasn't also okay but invited her to look at another 
way of interacting through her voice and see what that would help her find in herself. And, and that kind of that, that's like a, a beautiful invitation that I've never really heard or seen uh, through any, uh, any interactions I've ever had in the past. So that speaks really uh, tons to her father because he recognized that what, how to the degree that it was only her voice or if he was subconsciously figuring that there's more going on, whatever he did, he was helping her ground herself mm. through her voice. I think that's really incredible. Yeah. yeah. It sounds like your family anyway, the way you described them in the beginning, uh, they also had to go through their own journeys to be like the way they raised you, right? The way they communicated with you. Yeah, yeah for sure. My family are amazing people. They really are. And I ask all of my own podcast guests a number of questions that are the same. And one of those is who has been an influential person or, or people in your lives. And mm. it's interesting, so often it's parents. And for me, mm. I was thinking about this the other day, I have so many people who've been very influential in my life and yet the two constants throughout everything are my two parents. And I'm lucky mm. that they're both still alive and here. Mm. And the thing I think that pains me the most about my whole marriage and everything that happened with there was how much disconnection I had from them yeah. during that time and my brothers and sisters, but particularly my parents. I've always had wonderful, strong, deep relationships with them, which allows those invitations to come up in conversation as they are natural. Yeah. And so I've, I know how blessed and I'm very grateful to have had that upbringing. And that was probably the most difficult part of that marriage, not even everything that I went through. When I look back in hindsight, it was that disconnection from the mm. people that helped me be the person I needed to help me find myself. I think a lot of times when you're going through that kind of domestic abuse, you are so disconnected in yourself that it's hard to make connection with anybody who would even recognize how disconnected you are. So you like stay away from anyone because it only is it heightens how really disconnected you you are. It's a it's a vicious mm -hmm. reinforcing negative loop. Thank you for being with us. It was really great spending time with you. It was really nice. Thank yeah. You. And thank you for using your story to heal so many others. It's really, really beautiful. Yeah. Thank you so much. It was an honor to be asked and, and to spend this time with you and, and to bring this story and hopefully continue these conversations with your audience. It's a wonderful chaos. We like it down.